This episode contains adult themes, adult language, and a frank discussion on child abuse and its aftermath. Parental discretion is strongly advised. This week's episode of Trek Geeks is brought to you by Fansets, the place for amazing pin collectibles. They have close to 200 officially licensed Star Trek pins to choose from, with new pins coming out every month. See all the pins and collectibles they have to offer at fansets.com, and stay tuned for this week's special Trek Geeks discount code. Fansets. We are Star Trek. Hi, this is Michelle Specht. Dr. McKenna on Star Trek continues. As ship's counselor, I am recommending you listen to the soothing sounds of the Trek Geeks podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. Doctor's orders. Somewhere in the mycelial network aboard a specially outfitted shuttle. This is the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant, the home of Podfleet Command and the Trek Geeks Podcast Network, the flagship, if you will. It's the Trek Geeks Podcast, episode number 191. I'm your co host, Bill Smith, and it's so great to be with you this week. And um, we are looking forward to today's discussion in as much as two people can. Uh, we're going to talk about one of our favorite characters. We're going to talk about some other stuff. But, of course, when I mean we, I do mean my co-host and I. If he were the Red Angel, I would have jumped as far into the future as I could to get away from him. Um, yeah, because that would have just been some bad news. Although I would have loved to have seen him in that outfit. That's all I'm saying. He's the largely <laughs> largely moving through time Dan Davidson. And, Dan, you didn't have to slingshot around the sun, buddy. Congratulations. It's, it's always good when I don't have to do anything. Uh, which is probably <laughs> what I do most of the time here on this podcast. Don't no, I know it? Exactly. Yeah, it's great to be here, Bill. Uh, um, as always, sitting down here in my lovely podcast studio in Merrimack is one of the highlights of my week. Getting to sit with you, talk about stuff, talk about Star Trek stuff, and and just have a good time. And um, we've been talking for a while about um, tonight's topic and and when we were going to uh, share the story. And 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 tonight's the night. Today's the day. This week's the week, I guess you could say. So we're uh, we're going to tell a very um, serious and uh, an interesting story uh, today, and it's your story. It's a it's an episode that I've had to try to convince myself to do for about a year now, and uh, it's this episode of Trek Geeks obviously has a, a little bit of a different tone. We're not yucking it up as much, and I think that's just because we know the elephant in the room is that there's a serious side to this discussion. But before we get to that, we're going to actually talk about someone who's become one of my favorite characters in Star Trek, and I know one of yours, Dan, um, the only Kelpian to serve in Starfleet. Absolutely. Um, the, the episode title for this week is What I've Learned from Saru, and we're going to focus on you uh, in that in that 
story of what you've learned. But we're going to talk about Saru first. And like you said, the first Kelpian in, Star- in Starfleet. When Discovery was initially uh, announced and they started showing snippets and telling descriptions of characters, I immediately had an interest in Saru. I thought he was going to be the Odo of Star Trek Discovery uh, or the Data of Star Trek Discovery, so to speak. And, and um, the character is beloved by millions, but Saru has become a very important character to you and that's something that we're going to talk about here in this episode of Trek Geeks. It is. It's the kind of thing that that prompted me to write a column for StarTrek.com, one that I'm still very proud of to this day, um, one that I, I get feedback on um, at least a, a few times a month. Um, and it was one I was proud to write. It's it's a very personal story, but I think Saru is a character like no other, and we're going to get into that after the break. But first, Dan, you should tell people how they can get in touch with us. Absolutely. It's it, 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 you know, Bill, it is so easy to get in touch with us that even you could do it. Is it really that easy? Because I am not that bright. If you wanted to get in touch with us, Bill, even you could get in touch with us. Everyone else, just head on over to trekgeeks.com slash contact, and you will find a variety of ways to get in touch with either Bill or myself, even if Bill wants to get in touch with himself. Hello? Anyway. Yes, exactly. Hello? Hi, Bill. Hello? Hi. I'm trying to call me. It's not working. You've contacted us. Anyway, uh, (laughs) you can leave us a voicemail. You can Skype chat us. You can fill out the contact form and type us out a personalized message. Or you can click on that giant blue button on the right side of the website and leave us a message with your very own mellifluous voice using SpeakPipe. And don't forget, the place to be on Facebook these days is the official Trek Geeks Facebook group, Camp Kittimer. Bring your Trek talk, your Trek picks, and your Trek love over to the site and join over 1,500 other friends talk all things Trek. It is the place on social media where the Trek talk is positive with no bashing or gatekeeping allowed. Plus, if there are new announcements about the Trek Geeks podcast network, you're going to hear about it first in Camp Kenimer before anyone else in the quadrant. To join the group, just head on over to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer and be ready to be part of a truly wonderful social experience. As always, we want to thank our wonderful admins, Haley, Jackie, and Dan, for the amazing job they do running the camp. And we also and we also want to welcome our newest admin, Sarah, who you're going to hear very shortly here on the network with her awesome new podcast with friend Haley on Rewind. And believe me. You are going to love it, folks. Uh, Please remember, though, that any comments or messages that you leave us in any of these places may be used in a future episode. And if we want to rewind that, it would be... Please remember that any comments or messages you leave us in any of these places may be used in a future episode, Bill. You did that so well that I don't even have to edit any of this out. That's, That's amazing. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Dan, as always, we want to thank our friends at Fansets for sponsoring this week's show. You know, we talk every week, literally, about how they truly are the best in the business when it comes to quality Star Trek products with second-to-none customer service. Fansets, everybody there, they love Star Trek, and it shows with each and every new pin they release. And that's a lot of love, actually, because they're nearing 200 individual pins to choose from over at Fansets.com. 200? Uh, 200. Only 200? 
I'm sorry. Mundo. That, I'm sorry. That's not enough. Lou Birdie needs to get to work. Uh, actually, I, I'm just I am so impressed with the amount of pins that they released over the past few years. You know, normally when a product has been around for a long time, you might see some lowering of quality but not with fansets. Whether it's Star Trek or DC or Harry Potter or a bunch of other genres, the quality has actually gotten better with virtually every new release. And that's a testament to the awesome job they do over fansets. You know, it absolutely is. I mean, and we may see a couple of new Star Trek pins before the end of September, which will be a great surprise given the fact they already released almost 20 new pins at Star Trek Las Vegas. So, everybody, keep your your eyes peeled over at fansets.com for Discovery Season 2, Michael Burnham. And, of course, Star Trek Enterprise's own Travis Mayweather. What? I know. They literally could appear at any time. Now, of course, as a special bonus to Trek Geeks listeners, if you want to get 15% off your entire order at fansets.com this week, simply enter the word Saru. That's S-A-R-U, all capital letters, at checkout. And this bonus code is going to be available until Tuesday, September 24th, 2019 at midnight Eastern Daylight Time. Fansets, fansets, fansets. <laughs> we are Star Trek, and we thank our friends at Fansets for sponsoring this week's episode. Episode, episode. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you? Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, everybody, spoiler alert. The discussion from here on in contains a lot of spoilers about Star Trek Discovery Seasons 1, 2, and the short treks. So if you haven't seen everything and don't want anything spoiled for you, you might want to stop now. Otherwise, feel free to press onward, but we figured we should warn you about this before we get into the meat of today's discussion. So we move on to the main body of content pretty quickly this week, no news. And Dan, we're going to talk about a character that that really, I think, it speaks to the core of Star Trek in so many ways. And we're going to talk about that. And of course, I mean, Saru. I mean, I only happen to write a column about him, um, <laughs> you know, which is uh, really kind of what this episode is named after. But, um, you know, earlier I said he was a Starfleet officer like no other. And I think that's very true. I mean, not only is he, you know, a, a Kelpian, the first of his kind, we've seen characters like that before. But as Discovery starts season one, episode one, he's a being who lives in constant fear. And that was really a decided difference and change from every Starfleet officer who boldly goes. Absolutely. You know, we didn't know a lot about Kelpians. And later on, of course, with Short Treks, we had the Short Trek, The Brightest Star, which was phenomenal and gave us a great backstory for Saru. But when we first saw him, yeah, he was always living in fear. And he always kind of had a chip on his shoulder. That very first scene with Giorgio and, and Burnham and, and Saru on the bridge of, um, of the Shenzhou, they're they're just going back and forth like like brother and sister, Saru and Burnham, and and it was it was an easy way for us as fans to really start to like a character right off the bat because he seemed normal like us. He's you know he's kind of got an attitude and and he's kind of you know giving it to giving it to Burnham a little bit and she's giving it right back. But he did have that constant fear that one of the very first scenes after that, they're in the captain's ready room and he's saying, no, we don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. And you can see that he lets his fear control him more than his actions as a Starfleet officer should. Yeah. And that was really kind of weird. I mean, I found my, I don't know how you feel about this, but I found myself at first wondering how the hell is this character going to serve aboard a starship that is going to strange new worlds every week, potentially. Mm-hmm. And I, I found it a really fresh and interesting take on an alien serving among humans. 
you know, every time we've seen in Star Trek, aliens flawlessly and seamlessly integrate into Starfleet and the Federation. And here's an alien that, you know, is is probably the, the, the most alien by far as culture from what we've seen. He's chosen to assimilate into Starfleet, but he's still very fearful of everything and everybody around him. And it, it informs and influences everything he does. It makes me wonder how he promoted up so high um, so quickly. You know what I mean? That brings up two points that I wanted to bring out, and some of it ties back to later on with The Brightest Star, which takes place before the first season of Discovery, so keep yep. that in mind. Is, yep. is Yeah, he's constantly living in fear when we see him in season one of Discovery. How is he ever going to hold a command position when he's, when he's living under that constant shadow? That was something that I was concerned about for a long time. And the second thing is someone who lives under that constant fear I was impressed and also was like, wow, when he made the split-second decision to get on that shuttlecraft with Giorgio, uh, she was a lieutenant, I think, at yep. the time, yep. um, and head off um, from his home planet uh, in that short trek. Very, two very different aspects of the character, which kind of are opposite in, his, in the way that he does things. But at the same time, I, I think that decision that he made in The Bright Star was the perfect decision. Well, I think it was because otherwise, I mean, his only other choice was to stay on. Um, oh my Camera. God, the name, K- Camera. Camera. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like uh, Kelpia. Kelpia? <laughs> 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 to stay on Kaminar and wait for the Vahari. See, I got the important one right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> See, we don't really concern ourselves with planets too much here on Trek Geeks. No, so, not at all. <laughs> because um, there's all there are billions of those. There's lots of them. Lots, lots of lots, planets. Lots of planets. So yeah, I mean, his choice was go toward what scares him and go boldly or stay and eventually be called in the herd. Right. And that's that's a horrible choice. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who has that, always has that instinct to run or hide because of the way that that his race has, has been for generations and ho- however long, for him to just, that the, an alien lands on his planet walks up to him, talks to him through a device, and he's like, okay, yep, I'm coming with you. And then his entire life changes, and he becomes an officer in Starfleet and, and is, is second in command, uh, or eventually takes command uh, after, of course, what happens with, with Burnham. Um, and we saw in season two, he, he took command as well. So, yeah, um, very, very interesting. And the, the things that take place in season two, notwithstanding, we see him deal with his fear in many different ways. Um, and that ability to deal with those fears and, and concerns and, and trauma in his life is why we're sitting here talking about it tonight with respect to you. Well, you know, and it is trauma. I mean, because he and the entire race of Kelpians have been subjugated by the Ba'ul mm-hmm. and forced to live in constant fear. And that takes a toll. I mean, the fear he experiences in Starfleet is much different. You know, it's, should we do the thing uh, that could kill us? Or, you know, um, if he'd stayed home, it's, what am I going to die today? Right. He may not have those same thoughts and feelings aboard, you know, the Shenzhou or the Discovery. But I have to imagine anytime he beams down to a planet or goes on a landing party, um, his first thought has to be, where am I safe? Yeah. You know, how do I protect myself? How do I get away from the thing? You know, it's. Uh, I was going to save this comment for later, but I, I guess I'll use it now. I mean, 
at Star Trek, you know, we talk a lot about representation, you know, um, representation of, of gender, representation of race, representation of um, people who see something of themselves, uh, personal identity on one form or another. And this is really the first character that has really spoken to people who have prolonged anxiety because they can relate to him from the get-go. And that's incredibly powerful. It is. And and you have to wonder, you know, we've seen so many great things that the writers have done throughout the history of Star Trek. And in particular, we've seen them do things with Discovery that have really um, allowed people to grasp onto something. Um, the relationship between um, uh, Dr. Culber and, and um, Stamets. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Saru and his anxiety and his fear. Um, there's a lot of different things to go. And I, I, I have to believe that the writers wrote this character with that in mind. There are a lot of people that deal with different types of anxieties and fears. And, and is this character one that was purposely created in a way so that people could latch on to this character and allow that character to help them? I have to believe so, because, I mean, those two aspects of Saru seem to be in disharmony mm-hmm. if you don't know these types of experiences, but actually they complement each other incredibly well in the way they're written in Saru. You know, there are times where, at least speaking from my own experience, and I'm sure others have had varied and different experiences, I don't presume to speak for everybody, but, you know, there are times where my anxiety fuels my boldness, and there are other times where it causes me to, to shut down and not do things. So, and we've seen both of those in Saru, quite frankly. We have. Um, and I, I, I don't know how much of it was planned. Or I don't know how much of it was spontaneous, maybe added by Doug Jones himself, or what just seemed to come germanely in the writing process. It's, um, it's really kind of freaky to me how spot on it is without them necessarily intending to create a character with prolonged anxiety. Right. I think the first time I was really like, wow, this character really has potential. I, I was in I was in kind of a tug of war with how I felt when when we saw him not have that fear. And I think the first time we saw that was in episode eight of season one in uh, CV's Packham Parabellum when they go to Pavo. Yeah. Um, and he um, knows for the first time what it's like to live without fear. And pretty bluntly he kicks ass in that episode when that happens to him so it's like okay so we have this character that has a completely different um way of looking at things after this episode but we really don't see the full change in him until what happens with him in season two and i thought it was very interesting that first time that we saw him i was like this is great he's gonna come out of his shell but at the same time that shell is what's made him kind of a special character so i was kind of torn as to how it was gonna go no i totally know what you mean i mean yeah there's a there's um a a, a theory or for whatever you want to call it a uh a description of something called cognitive dissonance where brain and disharmony will move to be in harmony and Saru's brain through his his fear is probably in constant disharmony. So by the time the Pavans show him some Zen, if you will, mm-hmm. you know they get rid of the noise, they get rid of the the fear. Um, I'm sure that at that point he'll do whatever he can to remain there. His brain is like, I have this thing I've always wanted. Uh, we're doing this, y'all. Yeah. Um, and it's I rewatched that episode just the other day, and I, I really got a new appreciation for Saru based on the events that happen later. Um, to know that, you know, when he gets this first glimpse of it, I'm sure he doesn't ever think it's possible again. 
well, just think of the difference in what he's like uh, from what we see at the beginning of season one and through season one entirely, except for that specific episode that we just talked about. And then look at what he's like when he's on that Ba'ul ship, when he pretty much just like destroys everything in his path to get to his sister. All those all those probes that are coming down the hallway and stuff. Mm. And it's really amazing to see how formidable he can be and his entire race can be when they have that veil of the fear removed. And it's a, it's an interesting evolution to the character. One that I know has caused some people to not like the way it's gone. Um, but others have really appreciated the fact that now he does not have that, that type of, of, of fear to, to hold him back in what he wants. It could get him in trouble though, as we saw a couple of times in season two also. No, it's true. Well, you know, there's some people who, who feel that Saru can and does have the potential to be one of Star Trek's greatest ever characters. And some people feel that perhaps that potential is gone because he lost his ganglia too quickly. And I'm skipping ahead on the outline a little bit, but I, I guess I'll pose that question to you. I know how I feel about it, but do you think he lost his ganglia too soon? Um, you know, at first I thought yes. Um, we've only seen this character for, at that point, I think it was maybe 20-ish episodes. Uh, we had a good idea what he was like, and 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 to all of a sudden have that change so quickly, and not only quickly in terms of, of that episode, everything that took place, and then boom, his gangly are gone, and then the very next episode, he's out strutting his stuff and confident and telling the captain back talk and this, that, and the other thing. I was like, wow, is that is that really the way that the character wants to change so quickly? But based on the rest of the season, how it progressed, and what we're going to probably be seeing in season three, I'm okay with it. I, I'm i still kind of mixed feelings about it, because I wanted him to deal with that fear of the unknown for longer, before he had the ability to shed it and then gain a new experience. Um, because now he's... Uh, he's he's a little too sure of himself. Um, you know, th- that uh, the scene in, um, uh, oh God, the na- episode name escapes me because my brain's about going a million miles an hour right now. Uh, but the one where, you know, where he saves his sister and, and all that, and he's essentially talking back to Pike mm-hmm. and yelling at the Ba'ul. He's found a new level of boldness that he never thought possible. And I'm not going to say he's drunk on power, <laughs> Um, but he clearly takes it to a level that he doesn't necessarily know where to back off from. It concerns me going forward that maybe that will get him into trouble. Um, but, uh, ultimately I, I want to know that his experience becomes a complete one, if that makes sense. It does. And, and, and to your point about wanting him to, to, to deal with that fear a little bit more, I kind of look at it as, We've only seen him for this two seasons, but we got to think he's been dealing with this fear his entire life, and now he's at the point where it's gone. So, so we've only seen it for a short time, but he's been dealing with it for a long time. So, I kind of look at it that way in terms of of him dealing with his fear. He's been dealing with it for his whole life, and in terms of of season three, with what we have to expect, I actually like the idea of him having that fear not control him anymore because we've seen him in command now and he's done an excellent job both when he had his ganglia and when he didn't and now that they're going to be pretty much alone i think he's going to be the perfect person to be in command of the crew of discovery uh in the future 
That's fair. I can I can understand that. Yeah. So let's talk about probably the two most special relationships he has, or had in one case. And of course, I speak first of uh, Philippa Giorgio, uh, former captain of the starship Shenjo, who of course uh, um, dies unceremoniously in uh, episode two, season one of Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think the relationship the two of them had, especially if you read some of the tie-in novels, um, is pretty special because I can imagine that's probably how things came down. Um, he had hoped to be able to be her first officer. Right. And he'd got that taken away from him. And I think he took that incredibly personally. Mm-hmm. I think he did. Uh, we saw in the, uh, there were a couple of hallway discussions, as I like to call them, on Star Trek with Burnham. And he, when he was eating the blueberries is one yep. that comes to mind. Yep. And he talks about um, how that was stolen from him, basically. That yeah. ability or that desire to be first offer was first officer was stolen uh, from him by by Michael and the the amaz- the amount of respect and love that he had for Giorgio is something that he at the time didn't think he would ever be able to forgive Burnham for for the mutiny which I still don't really think that the mutiny was a mutiny <laughs> but that's that's, another, that's that's for another discussion the war was going to happen people no matter what happened that one that one moment um but yeah it you can you can see doug jones does such a great job in his acting with wearing all of that makeup and prosthetics to really portray his emotions in a way that we can read easily and those scenes you can tell how how devastated um, Saru is on the loss of Giorgio, but he has to keep it in check because he is a Starfleet officer. Um, and he does a pretty good job of that. He gets some great zings in there um, in some of those conversations. Um, but yeah, that relationship with Philippa was, was very, very uh, special to him. And it was, it was ripped away in, a, in an instant. Well, if you think about it, Giorgio saved his life and gave him a galaxy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if she doesn't land in that shuttlecraft from the Archimedes... And say, hey, come on with me. Um, he stays and eventually he dies because that's right. the fate of every Kelpian. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the events of, of season two, as far as Kaminar is concerned, probably never happen. Right. Um, so he, he got a second chance to live with her. And I'm sure that that's something that was the thing he probably was most grateful. You think about it in those terms. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised he took it as well as he did and kept it together knowing his fear because his anchor to that part of his world was all of a sudden just taken away from him. Right. And, and, and another thing to look at is, is it's not so much the, the, uh, the, the anger and betrayal that he feels uh, over the death of Giorgio, but look at how he reacts when Burnham gives him the telescope. Mm. I mean, that's another great example of how this character evolves over the course of just that first season, actually. Um, and, you know, we never think that he's going to be able to work with Burnham again. And if he does, he's always going to really have a problem with it. And, and there's going to be a lot of headbutting. And and that that melts away by the time the season's over. And I think it's I think it's a a great example of overcoming those fears because even though there's a lot of 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 hatred might not be the right word but there's a lot of that disgust for what happened he overcomes it he knows at by the end of that season that maybe he was wrong in the way that he uh he thought about burnham and they have a very complex relationship and so it, perhaps it's it's best to to maybe delve into that now since we've gone there na- natively 
Um, they have, especially in episode one in the Vulcan Hello, they have a very sibling-like relationship. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned earlier, they do give each other a little grief, a little lip every now and then. They are very competitive with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this sort of uh, repartee between them that that sort of belies a, a closeness, perhaps, a, a rivalry, a bit of resentment, but still some closeness. And by the time they re-encounter one another on the Discovery, um, Saru is, is, is changed dramatically, but so is Michael. Yeah. You know, she's living with the guilt of the fact that she got Giorgio killed. Um, and essentially she did. But um, she also has to deal with the anger from somebody who's been like a brother to her. And that's, as somebody who's still trying to figure out how to be human, that's, that's pretty significant. Absolutely. I, I also look at that first uh, episode with the two of them as kind of a little bit Spock McCoy-ish okay. uh, with, with the back and forth, which is yeah. something that I appreciate. But I do give it more of a sibling uh, rivalry uh, than, the, than the Kirk Spock. But I did like, you know, we always saw the banter on the bridge between the two. And I, I really enjoyed seeing that, especially in that first season. And we saw that relationship. It went through its ups and downs, certainly like any family relationship would. They consider themselves brother and sister. They say that later on. And it all comes to a, a dramatic conclusions not the right word but um, a good way to end the you know how we feel about each other based on everything that happened with the war in his quarters when his ganglia when he thinks he's going to die and wants Burnham to help him and his ganglia fall out that is a tremendous scene that shows the real bond and the family like connection between Burnham and Saru in that episode I couldn't agree more. Um, the one thing is certain to me. I mean, you know, there's some people over time who've, who've said, you know, well, are they really that close? And I think that season two proved that they are in that scene in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, here Michael Burnham is willing to, uh, to do what he's asked, you know, to sever his ganglia and just let him go. And uh, she, she essentially tries to do it. Right. And then they follow it on their own. And I think that's got to open up a new level of fear. He may not have his, his spider sense, as I like to refer to it, <laughs> but I have to believe he's not completely absent of fear because, it, you know, otherwise he'd just be too dangerous. I think he probably still fears things. He just isn't controlled by that fear. I think his fear is more yeah. healthy, mm-hmm. like, say, yours and mine. Exactly. You know, and, and I think that that in its own is a, is a feeling he's going to have to get used to. Well, look at Pike and the fear that he doesn't know what day that accident's going to take place after he sees the vision with the time crystal. He doesn't let that fear control him. He still has a job to do. He still has things that he needs to do as captain, and he's not going to let that fear control him to be like, oh, do I go on this mission? Is this where it's going to happen? Do I go on that mission? I'm not sure if today's the day. And I think that the same thing can be said of Saru now that he's lost the ganglia. The fear is still there, but it's not going to control him. It's going to help him. Uh, which is what we as humans usually have to use fear as a way to help get through what we need to get through. Nothing. Some, there's some famous quote, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. That of course there's nothing to fear but fear itself. That's not what I mean. There's right. something. I think maybe it's a Janeway quote about um, fear is what drives us all, or something like that. I'll have to look it up because I know Janeway did have some kind of quote about fear. I'll see if I can find that. Well, Michael Burnham has one at the end of season one of Discovery. You know, the only way to defeat fear essentially is to tell it no. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Janeway has a, has a great comment about fear. Um, as you're looking for that, I guess I'm going to ask a question and then answer it first. Um, and I'll let you answer it after that. Uh, do we, do either of us feel like we've seen the best of Saru already, or do we think that the best is yet to come? I'm going to say uh, at first I wasn't sure. Um, I, I was really thrown off by the loss of the ganglia. I, I appreciate what it does for the character. I loved the episode. Mm-hmm. I appreciate where the character has gone since then. And I, I firmly believe now with this writing staff and the faith that I have in the writing staff and where the story has gone that I, I think we have yet to see the best of Saru by far. I think he's just coming into his own. I think that uh, his his lack of threat ganglia is not going to make him... Uh, just another Starfleet character. Mm-hmm. I think, if anything, it's going to make him one of the greatest ones. I have to agree 100% with that. Um, we are going to be in unexplored territory with Season 3 of Discovery. They're pretty much going to be on their own in terms of they're a thousand years in the future. Spoiler alert. Um, and <laughs> I should, I'm going to cut in a spoiler alert before this whole thing, by the way. Because we didn't um, think to do it. Yeah, that's true. Um, but... You know, the great unknown, there is no greater unknown than what the crew of the Discovery is about to face now. And as fans, we don't know what to expect either. To me, when anybody who's listened to Discovering Trek knows that I was very disappointed and upset with how they ended the season. Because now, is it just going to be a spaceship show uh, like any other? Because it's, it's, they're outside of the Star Trek universe that we know so well. And, and as the course of the offseason has gone on, I've kind of grown a little softer in that. And I think that the writers have a plan and they know what they're going to be doing. And I think one part of that plan is to really develop this character in a way that we couldn't expect. So I think the best is definitely yet to come. And um, just to uh, quickly go back to Janeway quotes, fear exists for one purpose, to be conquered. And I trust fear. Fear only exists for one purpose, to be conquered. So it's the same quote, but I just added to it. So yeah, one quote. I'm going to be quiet now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dan, you can be quiet um, as I explain what happens next. So back in early or earlier this year in 2019, as we record this, I wrote a column for StarTrek.com. Um, essentially explaining what I've learned from Saru. Uh, there was a word limit attached to it. So, I mean, if, if I could have, I would have made this a 4,000 word, you know, epic, <laughs> epic tome, if you will. Um, so I, I had roughly 800 to 1,000 words to work with. And I told the crux of the story. And after, uh, after this particular reading, it's not often I get to read on this show, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the other things I've learned. Star Trek has always been a mirror for humanity. Its stories allow us to see a reflection of our society and ourselves, and at times we may not always like the image that stares back. As a fan for more than 40 years, I thought I had learned all I needed to from Star Trek, but I was wrong. Like many of you, Star Trek has held a special place in my life since childhood. I became a fan in the 1970s when the original series was in syndication, and at that time, it was my escape. When Star Trek Discovery premiered in the fall of 2017, I knew that I would love the character of Saru, but I had no idea that he would become a teacher of sorts as I struggle with one of my biggest challenges. It's not really easy to admit publicly, but I have a crippling fear of tall buildings and of cities. 
Approximately 10 years ago, I was commuting to South Boston, Massachusetts for work, and I had a massive anxiety attack as I drove there. Now, I hadn't traveled to Boston in many years, and I got lost when my GPS couldn't provide direction. I had no idea where I was going, and I wound up in the heart of the city, surrounded by everything that truly terrified me. I had tears streaming down my face. My heart pounded in my chest so loudly that I I felt like I couldn't hear anything else. I felt like I couldn't breathe, and I held the steering wheel of my car so tightly that my hands ached for days. I'd never had an anxiety attack before, and it forever changed how I perceived the world. It also began a long road of trying to understand my particular version of anxiety. It's become a constant companion, and some days are much easier than others. When Discovery debuted, I felt drawn to the character of Saru almost instantly. I've always identified with Star Trek's messages and themes, but Saru was the first character I saw something of myself in. There are times when I feel as though I exist in fear, and so based on that, I understand him all too well. Through Discovery's first season, and the subsequent short trek, The Brightest Star, and also going into season two, I feel as though Saru has been teaching me lessons that I need to be mindful of on my journey. There is no shame in fear. You know, when Saru's threat ganglia become visible, his first instinct typically was to cover them. He seemed embarrassed by it at times, even though it was a normal reaction. When I'm experiencing anxiety, I feel certain that the world can tell, and it's the kind of thing I become extremely self-conscious about. I feel like I'm on display and that others must see how terrified I am, which causes the anxiety to become worse. In those moments, it's easy to forget that such fear is normal, and while other people may not share it, they certainly don't judge me for it. Going boldly does not mean the absence of fear. For decades, Star Trek has entertained us as our Starship crews have gone boldly where none have gone before. Saru goes boldly, but he shows us that one can still be fearful about it. He experiences new things and even danger on a regular basis, and yet still moves forward. It is a powerful reminder to me that I shouldn't avoid new experiences or situations because I'm afraid that it could generate anxiety. Like Saru, I can boldly go. I just need to remind myself. Don't accept the no-win scenario. In the episode What's Past is Prologue, Saru gives an inspiring speech to Discovery's crew. He trusts in those around him to be successful, even when his instinct as part of a prey species might tell him the exact opposite. It's a reminder to me that I don't need to do everything myself. I have an amazing support system around me who will help me succeed even when I think I'm not capable of it. And you are more capable than you think you are. Saru is a being who has lived with fear, but aspires to be more than what he is. In The Brightest Star, Saru is faced with a choice that will change everything he thinks he knows. Despite his instinct and his trepidation, he eventually decides to leave his home. His hope that there could be more to his existence is far stronger than his fear of the unknown. It's really easy for me to get into my own head and talk myself out of things simply because I don't think I'm going to be able to do them. Yet in the last 10 years, there have been times where I have truly amazed myself with what I can do. Sometimes it comes naturally, and other times there's some degree of trial and error. But the only thing that limits me is my own fear. In season two, Saru continued to evolve in his journey, 
I'll admit I was emotionally affected by the loss of his ganglia in an obel for Charon. And while I was happy that he might no longer live with this constant anxiety of what might happen, I was also sad that this might make his world even more uncertain in some ways. Up until now, he's had what amounts to an early warning system. You know, could the loss of his ganglia make him even more fearful in the future, or might it embolden him to do things he never thought possible? I have tattooed on my wrist the phrase, boldly go. It's as much a trophy of my accomplishments as it is a reminder. I look at it daily and I know that I've come so far, but I have a great distance yet to go on my journey. In many ways, it's the perfect mantra for me, and and now I have a remarkable teacher. I know that Saru still has things to teach me, and I can only hope that I meet those challenges with as much courage as he has. This episode contains adult themes, adult language, and a frank discussion on child abuse and its aftermath. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Wow, man. So um, in examining Saru and in writing that amazing column for StarTrek.com, it really caused you to revisit traumatic aspects of your childhood. And we're here tonight, today, this week, as I said before, to to tell your story. And I'll say up front before we get started on this, I know how you're feeling right now. Because when we did the other the other version of my story a couple years ago, the butterflies are going a thousand miles an hour, you're nervous, you're not sure how you're gonna get through it all. But um I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pat you on the back right now uh and congratulate you because um I know you've got uh quite a story to tell. I have a box of Kleenex. Yes, and, you do. Uh, and uh, you're right about butterflies. I've never been nervous doing an episode of Trek Geeks, but I am nervous for this one mm-hmm. um, because it's hard. It's rough to admit that you're an adult survivor of child abuse. Yep. I, I, As I say those words, it's really hard to say. I uh, selfishly, I, I am, I am very thankful that I have not been, but at the same time. Having someone as close a friend who has been through that makes me appreciate you all that much more because of what you are now today. Well, you know, I have to say, I mean, to put it in perspective, um, uh, I my life was never in danger. You know, I was I was never beaten within an inch of it. Um, I, I was never, you know, I never suffered any broken limbs uh, or or body parts. But that doesn't mean that the trauma and the abuse wasn't real. You know, like Saru and the Kelpians. And I don't mean necessarily to draw this correlation now, but I will. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, they were subjugated and they lived in fear. And I spent the years of roughly eight years old till the time I was 18 living in fear of my father. Um, uh, although this isn't the reason why, um, he was, a at one point, a gunnery sergeant in the United States Marine Corps before I was born. And when he and I were alone, Um, he essentially would go into drill sergeant mode, the equivalent of what people would call a drill sergeant. And um, it was a constant sense of uh, aberration of um, uh, more often than not, he would take his belt off and essentially, you know, uh, whip my behind 
Um, there were many times where it was sore for me to sit down. Um, but it, it, it all started on a summer day in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1978, where he had said something that made me cry. I mean, I was a sensitive kid and he instantly called me a pansy. And I, I, I don't even like saying the word. I mean, to me, it's, it's my own personal N word. Um, because it's a word that just evokes such hor- horrible and horrific things in me. And that conversation there went from pansy to faggot to queer boy to any one of a number of things. And it started an almost 10-year period of um, systematic and targeted harassment and abuse. So, obviously, the abuse was not just physical. No, uh, uh, it was mostly. Uh, by, by to be honest, it was mostly said, mental. It was mostly the mental and the and the. Um, but there was a physical piece, yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, as what like again, as one who's not ever had that happen, I'm kind of not sure what's worse, because I kind of think the mental would be worse in my mind. It it's the kind of thing that that constantly makes you question everything and yourself. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost fifty years old. I mean, I don't, I don't to hide my age or anything like that. Very close. And very close. <laughs> oh, it's closer than I want to be. But even at 50 years old, um, it, it, there are days where it's still a, an actual struggle because you hear the voice in your head that you heard mm-hmm. for 10 years from your most formative years right. into the ones that are supposed to teach you something about adulthood. You know, I, I can remember... There are times where he would, you know, whenever my mother or sister would leave the house, or usually both of them, honestly, because they were never around, he would essentially drag me into the bathroom by the nap of the neck and put me on a scale, usually in my skivvies, uh, or it's what he called them, or, you know, white fruit of the limb briefs, mm-hmm. and would proceed to scream at me. He'd pull my hair back so that my head was wrenched straight up, and yep. his face would be literally a half an inch away from mine, and he would scream incessantly for hours um, and you're not so good let, enough you're not smart enough you're gay you're a little faggot um uh all of that stuff and he would do this after your sisters and mother would leave yeah that's interesting and i don't mean that in a good way um well, so it's like he did it, it's to me it's like he knew that he wasn't supposed to be doing it so he waited it was control wow um, in situations like that it's uh, you know uh, the that's really all it can be, I think. Um, I'm no expert. I just know what I went right. through. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there was also the, uh, there were the threats. You know, if you tell them about this, wow. I'll hurt them or I'll hurt you. You know, um, especially threatening to hurt my mom. Um, and one time where he, he actually tried to. Um, it's, it's, it's rough to think about. It's rough to talk about. But there are days where it's hard not to see myself as an eight-year-old boy mm-hmm. sitting in the front seat of a Ford Fairmont station wagon, bawling his eyes out because his father had called him a faggot. No. Yeah. I, um, it's, it was during those times where the original series became supremely important to me. You know, I had started to watch it just a couple of years earlier, and that was what brought me the most joy, was losing myself in that world. Right. You know, and uh, we've talked about that before in the 100th episode, and again in our visit to Trek on Daroga. Those hallways of the Starship Enterprise, they're, they're the safest place in the world to me. 
Mm-hmm. I understand that they're nothing but plywood and paint and, and fancy lights and doors that people have to pull a, a rope to open. But to me, it's real. That's the most important thing. I feel like I feel like Benny at the end of at the end of that Deep Space Nine episode. It's it's real. I can see it, mm-hmm. and I was able to touch it. Um, and like I said, this went on systematically for approximately a ten year period up until the point where I was almost eighteen years old. When I turned eighteen, it just stopped. On its own. Yeah. Well, kind of. So there came a day where. I was roughly 17 years old, and uh, I was a senior in high school, and my father had, uh, it was breakfast time, he had said one too many things to me, and I snapped. And I essentially told him to go fuck himself. And he picked up his cane to beat me with it. Mm -hmm. And I picked up a chair to smash over his head. At that point, he knew that he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Because I, I had had enough. I was broken. You know, I was, I, I didn't, well, I, I, I won't say I didn't have a childhood because I do have some pleasant childhood memories, mm-hmm. but I don't have any pleasant memories of my father. Right. Not a one. I don't hate him because I think that hate is a, is a useless emotion. I have apathy toward him. He died now in 1997. He's been gone for, for quite a while now, but I didn't cry. Yeah. I, I didn't uh, I didn't necessarily mourn. I just I felt nothing because I didn't have that closeness. Some of the times I dreaded the most was, was my mom, my very well-intentioned mom, who didn't know most of what was going on, would say, "Why don't you go outside and help your father?" You know, like hold the flashlight. That infamous phrase from the nineteen seventies. Oh yes, yep. Or you know, go see if you can hand him some tools. Mm-hmm. And those would be the times where he would get some abuse in quietly. Yeah, but everything was always questioning the fact that he thought I had no friends, um, uh, th- that he thought that I was, you know, in his mind homosexual, um, because I was his most sensitive kid, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I was I was a sensitive kid. Uh, I was a bedwetter. I'll freely admit that right now. And I used to get a lot of those whippings across my ass for wetting the bed. Um, not all of them. There were a great many that I took for just no reason at all, mm-hmm. but a good many of them were just for being a bedwetter. That's because half the time I was scared to get out of bed to see uh, him. Yeah. I was going to say that that was probably the cause. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But wow. the day it stopped, I saw fear in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Like, he's going to kill me. And if my mom hadn't stopped me, I don't know what I would have done because I had been driven Dan over a 10 year period and just worn down and beaten down until finally my brain had said, you just, you have had enough. You can't do this anymore. You, you can't. And you know, I would have cracked that thing over my father's skull. We have been friends for 25 years now. And we've had a lot of deep conversations and we've had a lot of conversations about our past and, and things that have happened to us in our lives. And you have shared some of these stories with me. Um, the one that comes to mind was, was how he would pull your head back and be right in your face, which I believe is part of the reason that you have anxiety with tall buildings. Um, 
We'll talk about that. I, I haven't heard some of this stuff and it's, it's, it's gut wrenching and it's, it's ripping my heart out, man. And I can only imagine what you're going, th- what you went through, um, what you're going through to revisit it. Um, and, and tell the people that are listening, uh, it, it's, I don't know what to say. I, you're you're a better man than I am for to be able to sit here and 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 talk about this and and talk about the fact that there was a moment where either one of you would have, if if your mom wasn't there, something bad would have happened. It would have. And the weird part is, I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. I, is it who I am? No. <laughs> you know me i'm i'm yeah. not a violent person by any means i mean yeah. i'm the guy who chooses to to find a way to laugh about everything um but that day i i couldn't uh you're right i am terribly horribly phobic of tall buildings and that's because in that 10-year period i became fearful of everything that was significantly taller than i was mm-hmm. i can remember a time driving to my great aunt's house in newton massachusetts and for anybody who knows boston well there's this road called storo drive which when you come off the the, uh, the lower deck of the central artery, you would take a curve right around Storo Drive and you come down by the Charles River. The hat shell on the Esplanade where the Boston Pops play the 4th of July concert is on the, on the right as you, you drive down Storo Drive. And you can see um, the Prudential Tower and you can see the John Hancock Tower, mm-hmm. which back in those days in the 1970s was often referred to as the Plywood Palace. And Dan, do you remember why it was called the Plywood Palace? I don't actually remember that. That's because windows would fall out of it. Like for no okay. reason. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, my, my father kept referring to it as the Plywood Palace. And I happened to ask him, uh, why is it called the Plywood Palace? He goes, well, because windows fall out. I said, well, what would happen if you were on the ground and one of the windows fell out? And then he says, uh, well, I'd guess you fucking be dead, wouldn't you, you stupid faggot? Wow. Jesus Christ. And from that and- moment on, I conditioned myself to not look at the buildings you know with the if the pre center and the and the jh are on your your left i'd be looking at the charles river on my right yeah and that's how it started and then the the constant you know uh, gunnery sergeant sessions as i like to refer to them um, made me fearful of everything and there i've uh, I, I can't ever go to new york city again i was there once in 2001 for a, mm-hmm. a trade show and I literally, I'm not proud of this by any means, but I had to be drunk to walk around. I was staying in Times Square at the Marriott Marquis, which is the largest indoor atrium of any hotel in North America. Right. And I was in hell. Mm-hmm. I, I was, it was a week-long panic attack with no meds. Because at that time, I didn't understand what panic attacks were. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Las Vegas becomes not really less and less fun every year, but more and more challenging with how some of these buildings are right up on the strip. Sure, um, sure. Even just looking up, I, uh, this is something I really haven't told many people. I, you know, I've never looked up at the stars. I'm 50 years old and I've never looked up at the stars. Well, you, even with that being said, man, uh, you will, I'm sure, at some point. You've made amazing strides in the time that I've known you and just in the short time that we've gone to Vegas. We went on the freaking Ferris wheel thing. I don't even know what it's called. The eye or whatever it is. You did it. And and every time that we go somewhere where there are tall buildings, I know that if you need somebody, I'm right there for you. But a lot of times, you've been good. I know that at times it can it can bother you and, and you can be nervous about things. But 
you're overcoming the fears and it kind of ties into the Saru conversation that we're, that this whole thing is about. You you've got a lot you've got a lot that you've dealt with over your over the course of your life and 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 you're doing you're doing great. Well, I am and I'm not because I I hide it well. You know, I'm I'm somebody who has been abused. So mm-hmm. I have learned to make it look like I'm doing okay. And I'm becoming more and more comfortable with not looking like I'm doing okay. Um, Which is good. I, I think there's no good. reason to hide it. No, but you know, we as a society don't don't do that. You know, um, we we tend to shy away from these discussions uh, because mental health is is bad. You know, if you have some of these experiences, you know, your your damaged goods, or if you you have feelings that um, of anxiety, people think you're crazy. Um, yeah. And it's not about that. I mean, every day we walk into a 14-story building. Right. And it's the hardest thing I do every single day. You know, I have to prepare to do it. It's not like I just get out of my car and I walk in. Everything has to be a certain way. It's a, it's a method now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it three years almost coming up in the spring, and it does not get any easier. People go, ah, now it gets easy. People can't fathom that I have a hard time being right. in arenas. Because they don't get it. And they can't, and I understand that. And they can't, exactly. I have our time being in an enclosed arena. Mm -hmm. Kelly and I were at a a concert at the the arena in downtown Manchester. An arena I've been in dozens of times over the years. And I had a panic attack, and I had to leave Mm -hmm. in the middle of the show, and I felt horrible. I felt horrific. She bought me tickets once to see an Atlanta Falcons game at the Georgia Dome, not realizing that the Falcons played in a dome. And I got to the entrance and I couldn't go in. I I couldn't do it. I I remember how nervous you were when we went to the Star Trek concert a couple of years ago. Yep. Cuz we were on the front row of the mezzanine, mm-hmm. I yep. believe. Yep. I mean, very front row and this is an old I forget where where the name of the place that it was, but it's an old Bo- building in Boston for it's the the, the Wank Theater. Yeah. The Wank yeah, so Wank Theater it's very it's it's a dome and it's very uh, it's it, I, even for me, it was kind of like, whoa, this is kind of like, you know, you get kind of dizzy when you're looking around at everything going on. So, yeah, I remember that, and and I know that I know that it's tough for you. I have to plan everything to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, if I go somewhere, I know how I'm leaving. I, I know right. I know what my options are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like a threat assessment, if you will, and it's hard to keep that in check. It's very easy to say, oh well, it's it's. I can do this, but it's once you're in the element and in the moment that these things come rushing right back to you. And at times they feel uncontrollable. So it, it's weird in a way that some of this has come up in examining a character like Saru, because I never thought this would be the case. Mm -hmm. Um, In some ways it's like living it all over again. And in other ways, it's like putting some of these aspects in their place. Not to bed, because that will never happen. Right. This is something I will always live with. It's a question of how it is managed. But there are aspects that are easier than others, if that makes sense. Let me ask you this, and I don't mean this to sound to be a cold-sounding question, but you just said something that made me think, and you probably just saw me start jotting something down. Saru has become an unbelievably important character for you because of everything that you've been through. And as you, with the reading that you did of, of the article from StarTrek.com, in, 
Saru's character during the course of the two seasons that we've seen with Discovery and how you have connected with him. Did you ever at times feel yourself pissed off that Saru has brought you to rethink all of these things maybe more than you had before? No. No, not pissed off. Mm -hmm. Um, Anxious. uh, If anything else, more contemplative. Really? Okay. You know, it, which is great. It's in a way. Well, because I mean, Star Trek is something I've always lost myself yeah. in. Yeah. And it's one thing to step outside of the what you experience in the normal everyday and look at Star Trek. I and mean, when we do Discovering Trek, I get to look at it from a completely different angle. And I don't look at it through the eyes of uh, of somebody who has dealt with these things. I look at it in the eyes of somebody who's trying to be critical of Star Trek, positively right. or negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only in taking a step back and actually re-listening to some of those discovering tracks and in re-watching Discovery where I've said, well, what does this mean to me? Because you know, we talked earlier about representation and this is the first time I've ever seen myself in Star Trek. The f- very first time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some people go, well, you know, I'm Spock or I'm Kirk. Yeah. I've never seen myself in any of them. Not Picard, not Riker, not, not Archer, none of them. Saru is really the first because he embodied what I have always felt is and I know this is not the case, but this is how the mind works. The first thing people notice about me is fear. And it's not because right. they say, don't no, it see isn't. it. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, you know, when you have those feelings, you think the entire world is looking at you. Absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I went through the same thing in a different way. And, and you're absolutely right. It, it, I, I, never really, I never really thought that you thought that way. Um, and and you're right. I know. I know it's not easy to 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 hear people say it when you think the way. But that's definitely not the first thing that people see with you. But I totally understand where you're coming from. That 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 you think that. And I know there's going to be somebody who sends an email that says, "Dude, just look up at the stars." It's not that simple. No. It, it, and no, it's not. And people don't send that email, please. <laughs> Jesus. For, for for over forty years, I've conditioned myself to not look up. Yep. Looking up in it on its own is something that generates anxiety because everything that's ever been up there has been something I'm supposed to be afraid of. Yeah. You know what? When you're ready to do it, you'll do it. I feel that you will do it in your lifetime um, because of what I've seen with you uh, over the course of the, the years that we've we've been friends and especially the years that we've been doing this podcast. Um, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But when you're ready for it to happen, it'll happen. You know... I've always taken my looking at the stars through the view screen of the Enterprise or through, you know, the windows in 10 forward or from the promenade of Deep Space Nine or Mm -hmm. that's been my stargazing. And it it occurs to me that that's probably not enough. You know, it's one thing to dream of the stars. It's another thing to look at them and wish what might be. And it seems so simple, but yet it's something that's so elusive and that's actually, believe it or not, that's a realization I've only come to recently that I've ever not, never actually looked at the stars. Um, it's it, it, it's a weight, you know? It's it's hard. Because you want to be able to just do something, this motion, I'm going to do it now because you and I can see each other. Mm-hmm. But for people who can't see us, I'm actually just going to look up. Doing something as simple as this and extending my head upward is... It is a foreign feeling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it, it feels really weird to do. Other people take it for granted. I know people don't walk around looking up at tall buildings. I get that doesn't happen. But I, I can't think of how many times people around me said, oh, look at that. I've done that a hundred times to you. I know. <laughs> yes, yeah. I know. It's a, it's a natural thing that people say that. And then as soon as I say it and you're like, ah, I'm like, oh, damn it. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I don't want to put you in that situation. It's a wave and it's a rush of yeah. dread, of, mm-hmm. of terror. And, and that's really what it is. You know, my, my father took from me a childhood that I wished I'd had. Don't get me wrong. I, I am so grateful for my mom. I miss her every day. I know you do. I, um, if I hadn't had her, I shudder to think it and what my life would be if I had one. But he, he took something from me. I can never have back. And now all I can try to do is exist like everybody else. And it's, that's the challenge. I look at Serene and I say to myself, he's learning how to exist like everybody else. I feel like I'm not done learning from him, even though he's lost his, his spidey sense, because he still, like we said earlier, he still has fear. I still have fear every day. It's not easy, but it, it's... It's my life. And I don't sit I don't sit here rocking back and forth or anything. I have a life I love. Mm-hmm. I have <laughs> I have a life it. I've dreamed of and I love every day on this planet because I have my bride and my dog and I have happiness beyond anything I could have ever imagined possible. Yeah. And beneath it all is the fear of an eight year old boy. You said that your father took your childhood, but I don't want to sound like a dick or anything when I say this, but it sounds that, you know, he has taken so much more from you because of that childhood. It's one thing to not have that childhood, but you've had to deal with things your entire adult life as a result of what he did to you. And that that's reprehensible. And, and you said you don't hate him. And I, I have to really really give you thumbs up for that because I don't know how I would feel. I got to feel that you have resentment and that you have um, the the why me type of thing that he would do this to you. But it shows the stones that you have that you don't use the word hate. And, and that's another testament to the type of person you are and the type of person that I've known for so many years. I won't let him victimize me anymore. If but, I reduce yeah. myself to hating him, I'm no better. You know, my mom always told me even as a kid I should never hate because hate is just it's gross it's destructive yeah it, it will it will ruin you and she was right she is she's right still today I mean she's not here anymore but she she's right it's there's no usefulness in hate it, do I resent things that he did yeah I do do I wish that it had happened differently I do have I ever said why me oh shit yeah uh, more times than I can count, but I won't let him take my adulthood. I have to find ways to go boldly. I mean, that's why it's tattooed on my wrist. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's why I'm going to wind up with a Saru tattoo at some point, because I, I really feel that this character has, has awakened something in me that it, 
for good or ill, um, will help me or help guide me going forward. Yep. And there are people who look at that and go, yeah, like some alien character can do that. Well, he can. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> because that's what <laughs> he means to me. That's what Absolutely. I've learned from him. Yeah. Is that, you know what? I don't, I don't, I never had threat ganglia. All I had was a threat. And I still found ways to boldly go. And I have to remind myself that I can go and I can do and I can be those things. I don't need to wear a Starfleet uniform to do it. I'll have to, I can even do it wearing a blue polo like I'm wearing right now. But I can do it. There are times where it's going to be hard. There are times where it's the hardest thing I have ever done. God damn, it's hard. But it, I, it's the only thing I have. It, it's all I can do is figure out how to keep going forward. Well, you also got people that love you and, and, and are proud to be friends. And to help you through the journey, uh, one of the things that took place in STLV this year, and I, and I wanted to give you that moment by yourself, so I didn't actually join you for this. Is you got to talk to Doug, you got to go uh, get an autograph, and um, he autographed your copy of the article that you wrote about his character on StarTrek.com. That it's must a, have been tremendous. It, it's it's almost indescribable. I mean, you know, I've said that Doug Jones is one of the kindest humans on the planet, and he, without a doubt, he is. Yeah. He is probably one of the most gentle souls and the, the kindest people um, that I have ever had the great good fortune to, to meet. And I'm not just saying this because he's Doug Jones from Star Trek or because he's, you know, an actor-type guy. I believe that at the core of Doug Jones is a <laughs> a human being and not... You know, some ego, um, right. you know, that that's that's hell bent on doing things for them. I believe that I believe that Doug is I believe that Doug is Doug. I believe he's <laughs> I believe what you see is what you get with him. Absolutely. Um, and he said some incredibly kind words. You know, I, I presented him a uh, my copy of the, uh, the what I've learned from Saru, which I had printed out in some really nice stock before we flew out to Vegas. And I left a big blank space at the bottom of the last page for him to to. To, to autograph and he wrote to dear Bill thank you for your beautiful words uh, Doug Jones and he he had some very complimentary things to say about it some of which I'd like to keep to myself yes but you know in as much as meeting Shatner was a hallmark for me in my fandom meeting Doug Jones I think is even a little better he is an amazing person every time that we've seen him He's got a hug, he's got a smile. Um, he is he is a wonderful person, and and I'm thankful that he has created this character for you to be able to connect with um, and and tell your story, man. And for you know people watching Star Trek Discovery, and they think, well, you know, uh, has Saru jumped a shark in essence? Um, I, I say there's no way for us to know. You know, we're still so... We've only through two seasons. I mean, <laughs> this is a character that has come so far in such a, a short amount of time because we only got, like, what, uh, 26 episodes right now? Sure. Total 16. or something in the 20s. Yeah, mid-20s, I think. 20, 28? Uh, 15, 29. 29, 29. okay. Um, math, is, math is not hard. Math is not hard at all. No. Um, this is a character that we've learned so much about 
and that we're going to continue to learn about. And you know what? He's going to keep continue to learn about himself. And that's really all we can hope for as humans, isn't it? I mean, we hope to maybe be a little better than we were the day before or to learn something more about ourselves that we didn't know. Sometimes, and I've made this comment before on both both podcasts, sometimes, you know, we look at that mirror that Star Trek presents to us and we don't necessarily like the face that looks back. You know, for years, I haven't liked the face that's looked back in my mirror. It's been the face of a terrified little boy. And that's not who I am. You know, uh, is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? You know, exactly. there is something more. There's a lot more. You know, there is, <laughs> there's so much more. And I feel like at 50 years old, I'm just getting started. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I, I think that between Saru and me, I think we can figure this out. I like it. I like that a lot, man. That's a great, that's a g- great way to wrap up the conversation. I will say this. Um, I know this wasn't easy for you. Uh, I, people have heard it in your voice. I've seen it on screen as we record this episode. Um, but you're going to help people with what you've shared. Um, and as someone who knows what it's like to know that their story has helped someone, believe me, this is going to make you feel good. It may be really crappy feeling right now, and your heart's probably going at about 150, um, and you're sweating, and, and, and there's tears in your eyes. But uh, I'll tell you what. You're you're an amazing person to be able to sit here and share your story with with all the people that listen to this podcast and with me because like I said, there's been things that I have not been you have not told me before until this conversation. I know. Um, you're fantastic. You're you're doing it, man. Uh, I'm here to help you get through it. I love you. We all love you, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for 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 sharing this. I'll say two things. First of which is I took my Fitbit off before we started talking so I wouldn't know what my heart rate was <laughs> because I had a feeling that I was just going to look at that and go, I think I'm going to go to VTAC any second. Um, and the second of which is um, it wasn't until recently that I've, I've actually said the words, I was an abused child because I didn't necessarily think in my own mind that it constituted abuse. One of my sisters had to tell me that, that it was. And it was when she said it to me, it sort of, you know, metaphorically slapped me in the face and said, hey, dumbass, you really were. And I've never counted myself among, I hate, I hate saying those people, but my people yeah. for uh, until then. And I know my experience is, is vastly different. I know people that have suffered worse. I know people who endured beatings. You know, uh, granted, what I went through was no picnic, but I know that my struggle was different. I'm not saying it's any less. I'm not saying theirs is, is any greater. But we all respond to these things and this trauma in a, in a different way. It's almost like a form of PTSD in a way, and that's kind of how I feel on a regular basis. I had that explained to me in therapy once, because believe me, I've been through years of therapy. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it, it does have the same effect on the body, so it's not unlike that. Every day is every day is a learning experience, and I'm just glad that I have the love of friends and family. Um, how they all just understand, I, I don't know, 
because for the longest time in my life, nobody understood. And I'm just grateful for that now more than anything. Well, I'm grateful to consider to be considered one of those friends, man, to, uh, uh, to be on the journey with you. And it's, and, and I will continue to be on the journey with you because, uh, it's it's one worth taking, my I'll, friend. It I'll, really is. I'll say this: we hadn't seen each other in about ten years when we went to Trek Boss twenty fourteen. Yep. And I explained to you my trepidation at walking across the street from the Heinz Convention Center. I remember. And goddamn it, Dan Davidson, you held my hand. I did. Yep. And you made sure I got across the street. And I always will. And I'll never forget that. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, man. Absolutely. Uh, and I will always hold your hand. Um, you know who else might hold your hand, bud? Is uh, the band Five Year Mission. Oh, I would uh, love to have uh, Mike hold my hand. <laughs> you know, they uh, they have um, great songs uh, talking about the original series of Star Trek. Uh, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five is coming. Trouble with Tribbles, Spock's Brain. Oh my gosh, there's just so much going on. FiveYearMission.net is the site. Go check them out. Buy their physical mu- the the discs. Don't just go for this digital stuff. Get the actual disc. You're gonna physical media, for. baby. Absolutely, it's the way to go. Uh, they're fantastic. You can check out the Five Year Mission podcast right here on the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. They're just fantastic guys, and uh, we're glad that they're here. Episode two is going to be dropping very soon. I think uh, as we record this, uh, it's actually going to drop the day before this releases. Um, so I mean, let's face it, everybody, Mondays suck. <laughs> all right, we all hate Mondays. It's the start of the work week. It's the end of your weekend. You know, uh, of course, it's tonight of Monday Night Football, but that's a different story. Um, but let's make your Mondays better and get some five-year mission in your ear holes by listening to 5YM Pod. That's all I'm saying. Absolutely. I, I just kind of hope that their second episode isn't called Seconds based on what we heard from their first. Uh, they're going to name it whatever they want, and you will <laughs> like it. <laughs> I will like it. I, no, no, I won't like it. I will love it, because I love them. Well, Dan, we also want to remind everybody that, you know, since we're talking about five-year mission, don't forget you can support the Trek Geeks Network of Podcasts by subscribing to bonus content on Patreon. And man, are we planning some stuff. <laughs> stuff, yo. In addition to the exclusive content that you aren't going to get anywhere else, uh, you can see the first of our annual supporters pins, and the second one is going to be coming up very soon. And of course, you can get raw, unedited audio of Trek Geeks and maybe some other shows while you're at it, along with a whole bunch of other perks, my friend. Absolutely. You know, the, the list of associate producers just keeps growing. It really is amazing. And Bill and I are, are just so honored and thankful for your support. And uh, those associate producers include Adam Sanders, Brandon Everidge, Heather Sohn, John Krikorian, Rick Tatro, Trey Womack, Sean Lynn, Tim Robertson, Tim Sardar, Vikram Bhatt, Greg Rozier, Andy Fark, Kimberly Francis, Ron Robel, Brooke Horton. Christina Werther, and the gracious and wonderful Conrad Hutchins. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. You almost sounded like male Siri there. That was pretty fantastic. <laughs> we also want to thank our Trek Geeks producers for their support. And they are Ken Tripp, Casey Shafsky, Charlie Mulvey, Chris Trebuzio, Craig Ewing, Eric Extreme, Jackie and Chris Hackney, Lanelle Marchand, Matt McGonigal, Mike Bovia, Harry Michelson, Patrick Escudero, Sean O'Halloran, Peter Craig, Ben Russett, Corey Stone, Ken Bird, Jamie Rogers, and the lovely and talented Scott Vashon. You too can become a producer on the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. Just head on over to patreon.com slash trekgeeks for all the deets. Yo. Did you say deets? I did. I had to throw it in there. It's not in the copy, but it just it's, felt right. There's a reason it's not in the copy. 
<laughs> sorry, sorry. You know, and, and I do want to say just to, to quick, quickly dovetail on the conversation we just had. If anybody at any point wants to reach out to me and have a conversation, I am more than happy to have it. Yes. Um, you can reach out to me on social media. Um, uh, you can email me through the Trick Geeks website. Um, uh, I understand that there's a lot to unpack there, and I understand it's my side of the story, but it's my experience. My father can't defend himself. He's dead. Um, but what he left with me is something that I have to live with now in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and if my experience says something to somebody else, positively or negatively, I'm happy to have that conversation. So, uh, Dan, next week, we've said this a lot of times, but this this actually may be one of the best episodes of the original series. I'm not lying. And I actually can't believe it's taken us four and a half plus years to dedicate a whole episode of Trek Geeks to it. Yeah. Nice. Way to go, Mr. Executive Producer. Oh, great. Appreciate Thanks. that. Yeah, yeah, throw this all on my shoulders. You know, the lack of appreciation to Star Trek perfection doesn't happen over at Discovering Trek. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> when was that last episode? Just <laughs> Hey, well, guess what? There's one coming out soon, okay? <laughs> anyway, yes. Um, it's time to discuss one of the best. You know, there's weddings. There's poker, there's bigotry on full display, plus there's a giant tennis ball spaceship, scary-looking puppets, and Clint freaking Howard. That's right, I said it. It's one of our favorites, the Corbomite Maneuver, and we discuss it in depth next week on Trek Geeks, the flagship podcast of the Trek Geeks Network. And get ready for it, because you have seven days left. You know, I have to tell you, when you originally wrote that copy, and I almost left it in there to see if you'd read it, like almost Ron Burgundy, you put Ron freaking Howard. And oh, I was just I? Gonna, oh, I was going to let it ride. I was like, if he reads that, it's going to be just like Anchorman. That's awesome. I could yeah, literally put anything in front of you and you'll read it. I, that's right. I trust the copy that I've given or written, even when it's wrong. Of <laughs> course, <laughs> for more great Star Trek discussion, please do check out the other member podcasts of the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. You can find them all at trekgeeks.com. There's five-year mission as we mentioned before there's Polytrex, uh there's rewind which is coming up very soon and a whole lot more of course don't forget about that other little show um discovering um something uh and of course for all the news on all the star trek co please visit our great friends at treknews.net for now this has been a very exhaustive episode 191 we do hope you all live long and prosper we love you buddy Music for Trek Geeks is provided by Five Year Mission. They are writing one song for each episode of the original series. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Trek Geeks, a Star Trek podcast, is a production of Coconut Media Works, executive producer Bill Smith. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and discoveringtrek.com.